yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with everybody behind film and television, uh, everything you see on the big and small screens, and even the very small screens for those of you watching things on your phones. Um, Directors, writers, producers, cinematographers, production designers, costumers, composers, um, editors, art directors, you name it, we talk to them. And very exciting today, two very eclectic individuals are going to be joining us. I mean, last week, I'm still out of breath from last week's show. Last week was, that was run and gun, people. Incredible, incredible guests last week um, with Rick Alverson, with Drake Doremus, and with Kirby Bliss Stanton. Three wonderful films. Uh, I hope a lot of you went out and saw the Mount Rick Alverson's The Mountain and also the documentary Love Antosha about Anton Yelchin. Uh, Yelchin. Um, but this week, more terrific guests. Um, we're going to have mil- interesting, interesting fellow join us, Milan Ludenia. Uh, he's going to be here to talk about a documentary about him. The documentary is from Core to Sun. And... I know. Call it crazy. And we're going to find out just how crazy when Milan calls us. Uh, he's an Ecuadorian athlete. He decided that he wanted to connect the two most extreme points on the planet. He wanted to run a half mile, a half marathon inside the deepest part of the world, which is the Miponang Mine in, uh, in South Africa. I happen to know a little something about this mine. Um, it is the largest gold-producing mine in the world, and it goes 4,000. It is situated 4,000 meters below the Earth's surface, uh, and the bulk of the gold that you buy, the gold that is kept, that is turned into coins, that is kept in bullion, the bulk of gold comes from this particular mine. But after he finishes the half marathon underground. Milan's whole idea was to then fly back to Ecuador and run or walk or crawl 6,280 meters above sea level to the closest point to the sun on the, on the earth, and that is Mount Chimborazo. Uh, Documentaries by Oliver Lee Garland, but we have Milan himself, Ludania himself calling in today to talk about what in the world would possess you to do something like this? And the grueling physical and emotional journey that he went on. It's a fascinating, fascinating documentary to watch. I still can't wrap my head around why anybody would do that to themselves, but that that's just me. Then at the midpoint of the show, I'm very excited. A unique and unique telling, interesting uh, narrative film, Ovid in the Art of Love. Uh, from writer, director, and editor Esme von Hoffman, and Ovid, Ovid, however you'd like to pronounce it, 
My Latin teacher would always say Ovid. Ovid, one of the great poets uh, to come out of Rome. And uh, I've read a lot of his writings in Latin, but it was more fluent than it is today, uh, as well as English translations. A poet, he uh, exposed the, the world to a lot of early erotica in Roman times. And very interesting character. And what Esme has done is take these historical stories and the, histor- and the history, and she has turned it upside on its head, much as what Joss Whedon did with Shakespeare, Much Ado About Nothing. What, um, oh, my God, and now his name, God, I adore him, and, and his name is now escaping me. Uh, along with Fran Kranz, they did Midsummer's Night Dream, turned Shakespeare on its head, modernized it, made it relatable, connectable. The film Ophelia. A whole new twist told Hamlet told from the female perspective of Ophelia with a lot of literary license. And now we see the story of Ovid and the art of love, which is the actual name of one of his seminal uh, works of poetry. Uh, And we're going to talk to Esme Corbin Blue stars in the film along with John Savage. It's beautiful. It's interesting. And it's set in Detroit, of all things. So we're going to talk to Esme. But before we get to our two special guests, we got some exclusive clips. And I know last week we started, um, we started the, well, because of time delays with people calling in, uh, we started uh, to let you hear some of writer-director Guy Nativ's, uh thoughts from our exclusive interview on skin. Well, given what transpired this weekend, I went back in and I recut and pulled out some specific excerpts for you to hear. There is no film in this country more timely right now after this weekend than Skin. It is the story of Brian Widner. Brian, who was a member of a neo-Nazi group, a white supremacist, a racist. And he finally saw the light at the end of the tunnel. He saw and he knew he needed to get out. This was not the life he wanted. Brian came to, it, there was an article done, Guy Nativ sitting in a Tel Aviv coffee shop, read the article and knew he had to tell this story. And what's very interesting with Guy being an Israeli filmmaker, he doesn't have a lot of the preconceived notions about America and what goes on here that we as citizens who live here have, our thought processes, which allows him to be more objective coming into the storytelling. He, it took a long time. He finally met with Brian. Brian agreed to meet with him and then turned over the rights to his story to Guy. Uh, it was a long, arduous process. You're going to hear about that in one second. But this is, a, this is something we haven't seen before. This comes directly from a former member of a white supremacist group. It is unvarnished. There is some literary license in this film. Uh, Jamie Bell, Oscar Worthy, beyond, beyond a shadow of a doubt, as he commands the role of Brian Widner and the emotional and the physical transformation that this man went through as a supremacist, and then getting out. Uh, It's a journey so that, you know, let's not dismiss people. 
Let's not let's not give up hope. Um, there are solutions. There are answers uh, to what we are facing as a nation. And with the with the incidents in El Paso and Dayton, and yes, I know it's Dayton. Uh, unlike our commander in chief, um, it's I felt it very important that you hear more of what Guy had to say. So let's take a listen to the first clip, Pam, which, where Guy talks about how he broke this down and wrote the script for Skin. Nato, it's, it's always tricky for a writer, for a director, especially for a writer-director, when you're telling a true story, your subject is very much alive. Multiple subjects in this film. Carol's remember. very yeah. much alive, he too. Is. Yeah, and he's here, by the way. Where do you, how challenging is it for you putting pen to paper and then translating that to the screen? Finding that thin, walking that line between truth and authenticity and taking a little bit of literary license. It is hard. It is hard because you want to be authentic, but you don't want to, you can't put everything in an hour and a half. You know, you can't. And there's some stuff that you cannot tell because of the FBI, because of secret stuff, and because it's, you know, you cannot. So you need to change names, and you need to, you don't want to make it too Hollywood, you know, you want to make it down to earth. And so um, it is hard, but that's why it took me three, four years to write the script, to find together with Brian and uh, Daryl Mon Jenkins, who helped me, they're consultant producers on the movie. Mm-hmm. They helped me they sh- to shape the script that is authentic, real, not too hard to watch, mm-hmm. but it's hard enough for people to understand how um, powerful and crazy that mm-hmm. he went through. And you do see, um, with great violence, br- uh, physical and emotional brutality, um, Guy shies away from nothing in, in Brian's story. And a lot of what brings this to life are the visuals. And finding the visual tonal bandwidth and then shooting huge rallies. The film opens with a a huge neo-Nazi white supremacist rally. Um, It is, it takes you aback. You will catch your breath in your throat the minute this film starts. But so I naturally had to ask Guy about finding those visuals, creating those visuals, and finding the, phys- the visual tone to match the emotional tone of this story. Now, how did you design your visual tonal bandwidth here so that it didn't, so it let the story come through, but not overpower what you're saying in the story? Um, I think it started with working with one of the... <laughs> Um, um, I was working with a, a lady uh, who did my uh, storyboard. I storyboarded the entire movie. Mm-hmm. So I knew visually... Tattoos and all? Everything. Wow. I storyboarded the entire thing. Wow. And uh, I worked with um, the one who, the, the woman who storyboarded the movie was Robert Altman, granddaughter. Yes, she was, that's what she does. And it was just two months of visualizing the movie and obviously when you come to set Arnaud because he's European 
he had a European perspective on America. So it looks like a European movie, but it's in America. And I love the fact that two foreigners, like me and Anno, seeing America in a different way, in a way. Not in you, you both way. bring an objectivity that Americans don't have. Yeah. Or naivete, not naivete, but I'm fresh. I don't have the baggage mm -hmm. that other Americans are coming to shoot America. I, I, I try to find different elements in America, mm -hmm. in, in the rural places that I shoot in. Um, it's poetic, it's poetry, it's poetic, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, like you said, it's visceral and green and something almost like greedy. Mm -hmm. Oh, very much so. And I look at some of the staging of some of these scenes these are not, these are massive undertakings from a production standpoint mm -hmm. when you have these rallies because you're not using stock footage from somewhere. No. You're actually shooting all of this. How, how challenging was that to stage not just all these rallies but a lot of the violent sequences that you have? I got help from a lot of people that surrounded me um, and they told me that especially the um stunt workers, mm -hmm. stunt, stunt guys. They told me how they usually work in those scenes when they control the... They rehearse the movement. They, chore they, they choreograph. They yeah, choreograph, yeah. And they work for me. So they, I tell them what I need and they work for me and they, they set it up and then I know that it's almost like starting in the in all, all the wide shots and going down and down and down and down to mm -hmm. the... You have to repeat and then you... Um, if you shoot um, very close, you don't need all the 1,000 people, and you shoot with only 50 people because you're so close. But then again, it's a setup, and I, it was important for me that the opening of the film will be very powerful mm -hmm. and very real. So I told um, my people, I told the production that I don't want to use dig digitized um, all the all the people right. and, and double them. I want to feel the real stuff and to pour all the money from the production into this scene because the other scenes are more intimate mm -hmm. this is the main scene and that's what we did it was full night from 6pm until and, and I had drones in the air and I had multiple cameras so mm -hmm. yeah I guess I guess it's um, it's sometimes easier to control those scenes than the intimate scenes like the house where all the gang visit his house mm -hmm. and everyone is looking and, you know, you have to... You've got to decide who, who you're going to cover. And do you go, you know, does Arno go with a wider shot yeah. to get everybody on the, yeah. on the two couches and the chair? Or do you bring in multiple cameras and go through the, the number of takes? And something tells me you didn't do a lot of takes of each scene in this film because of the visceral nature and the contentious nature. Totally. Because you, right. needed, you needed the freshness yes. of the tension. I did. And you know, sometimes the best take is the first take. And also, um, I had amazing actors, so they nailed it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't need to do a lot of takes. And as you watch, you, you will see there's a lot of dutching of the camera. And dutching of the camera, for those that may not know, that's where the camera is shooting on angles. It's not shooting straight ahead at somebody or catching them off to the side. The camera can be 
up above in the corner of a room pointing downward. It can be on the floor pointing upwards. And something that Guy does along with his incredible cinematographer, Arno Potier. Uh, and for those of you that want to see other examples of Arno's work, see the film Galveston uh, with Ben Foster. It is, and Elle Fanning, it is a beautiful, beautiful film, the direct opposite of what we see with skin. But so much of the power of this film comes through these visuals uh, that we see. There are a lot of night shoots, and uh, Guy and Arno shoot night for night. And quite often, the only, uh, the only light is it's either natural light, moonlight, reflective light off water, or it's from the flames of incendiary devices. Um, it's really a very, filmmakers, directors, cinematographers, especially for um, the more freshman class, it's, it's a wonderful learning tool to take a look at skin and to see visually the design and how that, that design affects the emotional tone and the beats of the film. Well, and it looks like, am I right, Pam? Do we have Milan calling? Well, we may have one more clip from Guy Native later in the show. But right now we're going to switch gears as soon as I switch all my paperwork here. Today, today was a run and gun day, people, because on my way over here, while I'm pulling some stuff out here, uh, went by some sort of police activity at a four-square church uh, in Ladera Heights. Uh, not, not the way you want to start your day, having about eight police SUVs, LAPD choppers above, and multitudes of people outside a church milling in the street at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning. But anyway, for, right now, we are going to welcome... We're going to welcome the wonderful. Is this Milan? Milan, are no. you there? No. Hel Hello, Milan Ladenia. How are you? Fine. Welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. Um, wow. That's about all I can say after seeing this film from core to sun. Wow. Um, I, I'm glad that you survived this physical and emotional experience that you subjected yourself to. Yeah, no, and just work. Just because while I'm here, I'm here with uh, it's Jeff Brand as well, the, the producer of the film, just here with me again. Hey, Jeff. And, um, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> we, we we just also survived uh, a two-week media trip back in the U.S. So that, was, that was quite busy for sure. We just got back to Ecuador the, this, this morning at uh, I guess two o'clock in the morning. Wow. Um, well, I got to tell you, since you're on since you're on the line too, Jeff, let me ask you as a producer, what was it about this? And let's face it, crazy idea. To go four thousand meters below, run a ha below the the earth, uh, and run 
a marathon and then get on a plane, fly to Ecuador, and then climb to the highest, the point on the earth closest to the sun. That's one of the craziest ideas I've ever heard. For you as a producer, I can only imagine what you were thinking. Yeah, you know what? I think I think it's uh, when we heard about the project from Dan, um, it scared us, but I guess that's what kind of made us feel that, uh, that it was part that could have a lot of potential. Um, when, I had, when I first got connected with Dan and I heard about his life story and everything that he had done, uh, previously to want to do this adventure. Um, I just thought that he had a really interesting life story. But then you put on top of that um, this new adventure and um, doing something that nobody else on the planet has ever tried to attack. And, and you know, the, the amazing backdrop of uh, the country here in Ecuador, but as, but as well, you know, going down to this deepest point um, in the planet, the gold mine of South Africa, he just felt, you know, felt like it would be a really interesting story to tell. We just didn't know how it was going to end up. <laughs> so, so as a producer, that, that was obviously extremely stressful. Well, something that I find really interesting is that Mian let you, actually, you went through the whole process with him, the training process. And, you know, this is one reason why I want, I want my listeners to see this documentary from core to sun. Because it's not just going out and training for a marathon and you run and you run and you eat carbs and things like that. This is because you're subjecting yourself to such extreme, uh, not just temperatures, but air pressure. And you've got to, it's a whole breathing exercise. I found it fascinating that your body temperature can't go above a certain point and you have to get retested before you go into the mine to go 4,000 meters below the surface of the earth. Um, all these intricacies of what Mian went through. Um, did, Mian, did you know you would have to go through all of this, all of these disciplines tr- to train, to try and achieve your goal? I was knowing in the way, in the way, in the start, that idea. It was uh, sound impossible, maybe, but uh, with my team, he signed the challenge in two parts. One part was in the similar condition in order to, to, to get in, in South Africa, in the mine. And mm-hmm. another side, in the mountain of Chiborazo, in, in So... This challenge was designed in different ways, physical, psychological, about food, uh, uh, about uh, physiotherapy, mm-hmm. uh, and another other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it was one of the things we did know that there was going to be this heat test, because what that is, Debbie, is basically... Um, the mine, the gold mine, will not let you go down the, into the mine to work or to spend time there if your body cannot handle the heat. Sure. So they take they take precautions, um, and that's what that heat test was all about. So you, you know, you see the film, you see in the film where we were really kind of a, you know, we're at a cliffhanger moment there because it was basically an all or nothing moment. 
<laughs> because if his, if his body uh, temperature didn't stay where it had to, then they would have said, sorry, the product was great. We flew all the way over here with a camera, but game over. Mm-hmm. No, and that was one of the great things. And kudos to Oliver and your editor um, in editing this. You really, that tension is palpable, whether... Because here we are, we've gone through the film, and, and Mian is training and training, and he's all set, and he's on the plane, and he gets to South Africa, and he gets to the mine, and then it's, oh, well, you've got you've to pass this other test. And, you know, it, it, it gives you the same heebie-jeebies that, all right, you're ready to graduate from college, and it's, oh, wait, there's one more thing you didn't do. Um, and you really excelled at building that tension to really get the viewer involved in this. Yeah, you know, I think I, Oliver is a you know the Oliver is the director of the project, and and Fausto Arroyo was the the main editor. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. They did a great job to, um, you know, not only in this on that particular moment to build tension, but but we've constantly heard the you know the comments. You know, the, the film just, it just maintains your attention the entire time. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, sometimes, you know, maybe people think, oh, documentaries are, you know, going to be a lot of, you know, mostly just news and, and whatever. But in this case, it was, uh, there's a lot of material to use there to tell the story. And I think they did a great job just, you know, building tension in different moments, maintaining tension. And, uh, and, and thankfully, we were able to have kind of a, a rocky, underdog moment at the end of the film there <laughs> I, I have to admit my thoughts immediately went to Rocky um, with, with me on standing at the top of the mountain uh, but ah, that, that was great that was great to see that Rocky moment that was great uh, and I think ev- everybody's going to like that that moment in the film because it is it's we can all relate to that we all go through those, was, have those rocky moments. It was a, a kind of rocky, but a little small. <laughs> a little small. A little smaller, yeah. You know, I've got to ask, I've got to... Yeah, but it was, I think it was... Sure, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, what, one of the other great elements that you have here is your cinematography. I mean, you were using what twenty-one cameras over the course of this whole uh, over the course of this shoot. Wait a minute, I got to throw something we at have, Pam. <laughs> yeah, uh, had, yeah, twenty-one had, cameras. Had, yeah, I think I think we had, had about uh, five cameras in South Africa uh, and, a, and, a, and a local drone operator, and then in when we were in Ecuador, we had on the day of filming in the mountains. There was, you know, there was about there was five cameras and two drones that were, you know, one at the base of the mountain, one one of them that was going up with one of the climbers uh, um, who was also filming. Uh, so yeah, it was logistically it was a very complex project, um, just because the action didn't stop, which mm-hmm. meant that the cameras couldn't stop. So you just never knew when something was going to happen. Um, but I think yeah, there, there's a there's just some beautiful shots there. You know, I guess Mother Nature definitely gave us a few gifts along the way. Um, and just, yeah, that, that day on the mountain, uh, when, when the end was going after the end of the, the end of this entire experience, it was just, it was spectacular. Just, just, you see, you see the rawness of the nature mm-hmm. with, you know, how fast 
clouds are moving as they're blown by as he's getting closer to the top of the mountain. Just, yeah, it was, it was beautiful. Well, and that's something, these are images that none of the... I'd say 99% of us are never going to experience or see, especially going 4,000 meters down in the mine. We've got a better shot. Uh, we've got a better shot of hiking to the top of the mountain than we do of getting down in that mine. Uh, so to see, you know, and just a lot of like in the mine to see the heat, to see the the te- the air quality, it becomes visceral. Uh, the camera picks up a visceral nature to that, um, and it was that's really fascinating. Um, and similarly, you know, going up, and then your sound design comes into play as we hear, especially on the mountain, we hear the crunch of snow and thing, and and the cracking ice that's coating the the frost coat on top of the snow. Really, a sensory experience at that point. The final third of this film is a, is a wholly sensory experience. And so well done, Jeff. Well, thank you so much, Betty, for picking up on all those details. Because they were details that, that, the, that the team uh, specifically worked on. Uh, David uh, Perez, who was who was sound designer, and, you know, tried to work on recreating those sounds. Um, that you know that you do for an experience while on the mountain, like that crunchy snow beneath you uh, as the crampons are are you know in. Um, uh, the temperature and you know that the city in the in the mines is just is just unbelievable. And, um, but yeah, but it, I mean it all worked really well together uh, as well as you know Sam Walsh did that. Mm-hmm. The composer for the 14 original tracks. We love to work with them as well. Yeah, the the music adds a lot to it. And I have to say, I hear me on in there saying the temperature, the temperature. My heart broke for you when you were at the mountain and you were so cold and you just could not get warm. And you're sitting in the bus and, you know, trying to put warm jackets on you, warm hats on you. My heart broke. I, I was just, oh, God, he can't give up. He can't give up. He can't give up. He's come this far. Don't let the temperature destroy this for him. Um, but it did not. Nothing broke your spirit, Mian. I think that uh, in Chimbras, in the mountain, was for me the, 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 the hardest part. So I have to pay kids from South Africa. Uh, when I was in South Africa, uh, as you say, the the the, the, the temperature uh, was so high, high humidity, high pressure. Mm-hmm. And when I went to to Ecuador in Chimbotazo, I piloted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was we we were extremely concerned. Um, you know that you know the, that one point that that the scene that you see in the movie where he makes it to the to the refuge. We pretty much thought at that point it was game over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Red Cross uh, was basically saying, you know what, it's uh, it's probably it's probably better, you know, to call it because you know he's he's starting to have problems with uh, with his with his lungs kind of uh, starting to close a bit. Some like starts of bronchitis coming in. Um, so yeah, that was you know as a I guess as on on a producer side. You're, you're, you're hoping that this guy's going to be able to pick up 
you know, pick up and, and continue on. Um, but on the human side, your, your concern is also for, for the well-being of him because, right. you know, if, if, he were, if he were to continue, if things really got worse and he's up on the mountain, um, that, creates some, that creates a delicate environment. You know, I've got to ask you guys, we're almost out of time, but I've got to ask you guys about working with the Guinness people. What does that do to you, Jeff, as a producer? Because they're monitoring everything you're doing in order to ensure the integrity of their of their world record documentation. Does that put added pressure on you? Obviously, it puts pressure on me on because, you know, he wants that Guinness World Record. Um, but what is that experience like working with them? Is that a help, a hindrance, or just you a real know, pain in the neck? I, I, you know what? I think it's just it's just another layer on, on the you know on the cake in terms of what had to be done. And um, you know, definitely we you know we like the you know the, the I guess the commercial value that that Guinness added to the project and the fact that they were interested in being involved. Um, but for sure, we had uh, we there was probably I think upwards of about six months of, of dealing with them, um, determining exactly which Guinness World Record it would be, what the previous record was, mm-hmm. and then then determining, then determining with them, okay, so if we're going to do this in this gold mine, um, what do you need for us to comply with for you to be able to you know uh, uh, authenticate this this Guinness World Record? Because in this case. We uh, we had to work with the mine uh, for them to install like a closed uh, closed circuit camera system going down to almost you know four four kilometers mm-hmm. beneath the surface, uh, and then sending a signal back up to where the Guinness judge was because you know she, for for liability and and security reasons uh, you know she wasn't going to be traveling down right. to the bottom of the mine with us. There was cameras that were set up on each end. Of that, of that one kilometer route. Um, so in that way, uh, you know, everything could be confirmed. But still, when we got back up, when we got back up on top of the surface, you know, after an hour and a half going back up, um, she was still looking at the footage and confirming the information um, so that we could then know 100% that indeed, you know, Mian was a new Guinness World yeah, I mean, it's like when I saw you include that in there of her rewatching footage uh, after you're already up on the surface again, and I'm just thinking, oh, don't even tell me, don't even tell me that she's that she, <laughs> something is going to negate it, and he'll have to do it again, or <laughs> if he can, um, you know. One more thing before I let you guys go, there is there's a giveaway associated with the film, is there not? People can win. They can enter to win a trip. Yeah, it is. It is an unbelievable experience we've, uh, that we think we built together with uh, with one of our main sponsors, Weepy, and uh, and also Metro and Touring. Basically, for anybody who buys the film, if you buy it online at iTunes or at um, at Amazon, you just have to upload proof of purchase to the website, which is from four to sun.com. And, uh, and you'll automatically for the chance to win a trip for two from North America down to Ecuador. Uh, you'll go to five-day cruise in the Gulf of Islands and also a, a three, three days in Quito in, mm-hmm. a, in a five-star hotel in, in, in uh, Casa Gangotena. 
and it's uh, you're just not going to get ten of those nice uh, plates. And, uh, and you'll also be experiencing um, a trip to Cotopaxi, the volcano Cotopaxi, which is at almost a thousand meters. If you want to cross the top, you can't not. You can enjoy the views from down below. And you'll go to the, to the source of the natural panic mineral water from which. Well, I got news for you. I'm going to buy the film just so I can enter to win this trip. Because to go to Galapagos, Quito, Machachi, uh, and Cotopaxi, this, it, it's amazing. So you spend, what, $6.99, $9.99, you buy the film, and you have a chance to win this incredible trip. With me on there, no less. Exactly, and Mian will be there. Mian uh, <laughs> will be there on the trip as well. Uh, we, we, uh, only we, only, only we with, with you uh, all the time, and uh, we will uh, a different uh, adventure. I don't know if, if you want to climb to Chimborazo, but I tried. <laughs> well, guys... We're all out of time. I can't thank you enough for calling in from Ecuador today to to talk about From Core to Sun. A fascinating documentary, Jeff, and Mian, an incredible undertaking. Uh, I'm still in awe, still in awe that, that you did this. That's, that's, so, that's so great. That's so great to hear that feedback, Debbie, because, uh, you know, we, just to give you just a little uh, info about what happened, we were just in the U.S. the last talk, the last talk that we were on um, was in Alabama, and mm-hmm. we did a private event for basically what is a, a really small select group, which is the think tank for the, for, the, uh, for the U.S. Air Forces. And they watched the we came in afterwards to surprise them, and I tell you that their feedback was basically right in line with yours. They, they loved the film. They loved talking to me and, and getting to know him afterwards. So we're just, we're just thrilled for acting as strongly as they are about the film. Oh, fabulous. Well, again, I can't thank you guys enough. Everybody can go to Amazon, iTunes, and other digital platforms. They can buy the film, and then they can enter to win a trip of a lifetime with me on. Guys, thank you so much. And, Jeff, I hope you'll come back on the show and talk about more of your projects. For sure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ted. I'd love to. It's great to talk to you, and and thanks for for noticing all those details we try to take care of in the film. Oh, God, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. All right. Great day. We'll, We'll talk to you later. Bye. And that was producer Jeff Brand and Mian Ludena from Core to Sun. Yes. Calling from Ecuador. And now she has been so, so patient while, while we're dealing with, you know, the phone delays from Ecuador. We have the fabulous filmmaker Esme von Hoffman. Hello, Esme. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, my God. I am so excited to have you on to talk about Ovid and the Art of Love, or Ovid, however people want to pronounce it, and the Art of Love. Um, the minute I heard about this film, I just got an email. I got an email from Kim. I'm like, oh, I got to see it. I got to see it. Um, it's, I, I actually read Ova's writings in Latin. Um, back when I was in, I had seven years of Latin. Uh, and a Latin teacher who truly believed that she was a reincarnated Roman. Uh, wow! <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. 
So, oh yeah, she maintained that. Uh, she truly believed it, and she was so well versed in the history and of the culture uh, in the time of Ovid, in the time of Cato, in the time that it just it, it made you want to get to know these people. So, for me, then to see what you have done, because for those that don't know, one of Ovid's most famous writings was Ars Amatoria which is the art of love. That and the metamorphoses are the, the two big ones. Um, so the minute I saw this, it's like, what did she do? So, and what you've done, I think is just absolutely, you've turned it on its head and made history fun and interesting. Um, oh, well, thank you so much. What led you to this particular, this character, this story? And then how you decided to interpret it, blending a modern skew with centuries-old costuming and authenticity. Gosh, um, yeah, well, it's funny. A lot of people like you have said that, um, you know, they also, it's, it's funny. I feel like it's also something a lot of people have an experience of having read. And I uh, first actually read Ovid in high school as well, and I had a very diverse class with um, people from all different backgrounds. And, um, and, and I noticed he was a funny character and a sort of universal one that we could all really relate to. So this very uh, universal uh, person made us... Um, really respond to him. So I always had this sort of like, isn't this sort of this like amazing sort of universal character? I was very, I got very interested in, um, there's like a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces that I know has been influential with other filmmakers and um, the idea that there's sort of these like baseline visceral stories that cut across time and culture um, that have this sort of amazing resonance. And that actually I think makes it feel very fresh and um, real, and so I was thinking about how do we take this this story that to me feels very real and fresh about because on the one hand it's a, a young man um, who's you know finding his way in life and discovering romance and adventure and moving to the big city for the first time, um, and then on the other hand um, it's a sort of a story of like cycles of empire and um, standing up to a sort of authoritarian ruler and how can sort of just a, every, every man or woman stand up to an authoritarian emperor. So um, these all seemed like sort of very relevant and visceral themes, and I'd, I'd seen it um, myself that people sort of really reacted to it, and I'd actually made a short um, called Ovid in the Gutter, which I had um, showed around and had been very well received at inspired me to make the longer film um but in the sort of in the midst of this um i thought well you know how do we how do we update it so we were constantly looking for sort of a fun a fun way of modernizing it. and this happens in the theater a lot and i actually mm -hmm. have somewhat of a background in theater um where it's sort of co contemporizing um these sort of classic stories that are they have all these sort of very relatable themes of you know, romance and betrayal and that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, um, they 
when they update it, you can sort of see, like, oh, he's like me. So everywhere in the movie we were looking for sort of what's that line between, like, contemporary world and classical world. So Mm -hmm. uh, Romans, uh, for instance, actually did not read poetry silently to themselves. They spoke them aloud, so we set all Ovid's works in uh, spoken word venues, and we worked with real spoken word artists, and um, for instance, and we, the characters wear togas and sneakers, kind of like a modern day toga party, but also togas (laughs) like the Romans. Mm -hmm. So we sort of went through and did it, and I think it makes it very fun and relatable, um, and also sort of shows you know, how much has changed, but how much has not changed at the same time. <laughs> you know, th- there's a reason that, that that the old adage holds true. The more history changes, the more it stays the same. Yeah. Um, you know, history always repeats itself. And, you know, we see that playing every day. But human nature, human nature stays the same. It has for thousands and thousands of years. And the same things that spoke to people in ancient Roman times speak to us today, Uh, be it performance of some sort, color, costume, clothing, shoes, hair. Um, I I love the the, your hair, your hair and makeup. Fabulously done, fabulously done. You really stayed true to what we know from sculptures and yeah, and drawings of the of the period. Yeah, well, that's a huge shout-out to our um, hair and makeup people, Shannon Bakeman and uh, Yard, who did, I think, a fantastic, a fantastic job in that. Um, and I, I was, Shannon, who did our hair, I was so impressed. She would just, like, whip up these, <laughs> like, amazing hairstyles. Oh. Oh, and I, I got to tell you, what she did for the character of Julia the Younger, played by Amara Zaragoza, uh, her hair was yeah. flawless, flawless, gorgeous and flawless, and so period perfect for ancient Roman times. And then just the little bit of laurel that was put in the hair as, as like a headband, uh, yeah, in a little gold laurel was just a perfect touch really nice little touches like that. And then you bring in your costuming from Nikia Nelson and, uh, you know, the togas, the fabrics, you get that sense. But then, as you said, you do, you throw in the sneakers, you throw a backpack over Corbin Blue's, you know, shoulder and it works. It feels natural and it works, but it looks period. And that's a hard thing to pull off effectively. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for noticing. <laughs> you know, something that um, that really stands out here and absolutely gorgeous is your cinematography. Jeff George, your cinematographer, absolutely beautiful. You have all of your performance uh, segments vibrant with color, with reds, with purples, with fuchsias, um, beautifully lit with torches. Uh, in the third act, there the night scene, uh, as they're wandering through, as Julia the Younger and Ovid are wandering through all these different little little segments, little clusters of performance artists. Beautifully shot, handheld, 
Um, how did you go about, and then you counter that with court scenes or the more stringent elders, such as, you know, John Savage, who was killer as Emperor Augustus. Um, you know, how did you and, and Jeff go about constructing your visuals? Because this is a very definite visual design that you have here. Um, yeah, well, so Jeff and I definitely spend a lot of time talking about it. Jeff is, as you can see, incredibly talented. Um, we spent a lot of time thinking about how you make a sort of timeless feel. And so we shot on these special 1970s Lomo anamorphic lenses, mm -hmm. um, which have a sort of soft quality, a soft filmic quality, mm -hmm. even though it was digital. Um, and the other wonderful thing about Jeff, so he's actually from Detroit, and we, uh, the majority of our cast and crew is actually Detroit natives because we wanted to make it uh, feel very uh, natural to Detroit. I had set it in Detroit because, um, to me, when I was thinking about sort of lost empires, I thought about sort of Detroit being the sort of center of America's industrial lost empire. Mm -hmm. And there's... Um, you know, amazing sort of ruins that kind of look classical. Um, and like Rome, it's sort of a city that is, has many ruins in it, but there's sort of this new amazing arts community rising up in it. Um, and um, it was very, so it was very important to me to make it feel very authentic to Detroit. Um, and um, Jeff is a huge um, sort of Detroit connoisseur, and he grew up there, and so he was also very incredibly helpful in um, helping us find locations because we shot all on location um, that would that would add to this um, this sense of you know sort of where where America ends and Detroit be I mean sorry Rome begins mm -hmm. um, so and then we talked about sort of different sort of palettes for different characters like there's the Corinna character who's sort of Ovid's first love and we we sort of shot that and sort of yellows, for instance, mm. um, and then we would, you know, try to contrast that with sort of, um, you know, blues and greens for, and, and sort of art parks um, for a lot of, you know, what Ovid was doing. I think the, he, when he goes to the Poetry Slam, it's sort of blue and, and red, um, so we spend a lot of time sort of discussing palettes as well, um, and then, um, you know, it was a matter of lighting, which Jeff clearly did. Mm -hmm. did wonderfully and then we worked a lot with our um really incredible um art department um so some of some of the visuals um you know clearly the cinematography is all jeff george um and then a lot of it was our incredible art department who um were all detroit natives and uh we worked closely with a lot of um local artists because detroit um has a so that it's been through a lot and that it's lost a lot of population and there's definitely a lot of strife, but out of that has come this like amazing art scene and the people that have stayed are really passionate, amazing people. So we worked with a lot of sort of local, um, incredibly talented artists um, that help give the, the, um, the movie the look that it does. Um, so you'll see a lot of visual art mm -hmm. in the background and, and art parks because they've Lost, Detroit has lost a lot of population, but what they filled it in with is, um, like, people can paint houses because they're just abandoned houses <laughs> around. Um, 
it's it's almost like you took you know part of LA and emptied it out, and then you know there's all these empty houses. So um, you'll you'll see a little bit of of that in the film, and and, and the hope in the film too is that you also get a sense of like the in, sort of in, incredible stuff going on in in Detroit, mm-hmm. um, which um, is also very much showed through the art department. And then Jeff um, has a great eye for capturing sort of architecture and um, sort of the, the, the artfulness of Detroit. And so I think that combination worked really nicely. How did how long was your location scouting on this one? Because you do have you have so many locations, and <laughs> I mean so many locations, which that in and of itself, with a low budget, no budget, micro budget film, that has to be factored in not only to your time but your cost for bringing this film to life. So I'm I'm curious about you know your process of finding these locations and then your scheduling to bounce from location to location to location to location. Yeah, well, it it certainly was um, a challenge because we had a lot of locations. I think fortunately they were all in metropolitan Detroit, except for there's a, a scene early on that takes place in a lake house, but that wasn't far away. Um, but I, in terms of scouting. I, in, in developing the film, um, I was sort of going to Detroit for years um, and <laughs> talking to local groups and saying, you know, does this, does this story feel natural and right? And the answer was yes, and I probably wouldn't have proceeded with it um, if it hadn't been. Um, and as a result, I got to know a lot of arts collectives, and we got to know um, various um, Various like nonprofits, and um, it was sort of exciting for us because in the making of it, we could, you know, we could use their spaces and bring. We hope to bring them some publicity with the release of the film, and um, you know, clearly we we rented their space, so that helps them um, financially. Um, so um, that was a lot of it, and then yeah, we definitely had um, our you know, great location scouts, and then um, because we were working, you know, we have a fantastic producer, Michael Zervos, and who's um, a native of Detroit, and we had Jeff George, and um, a lot of people sort of put their heads together and would say, you know, when we were thinking about something, we'd say, oh, you know, you should check out this great um, house, like our, our line producer, John Schmidt, and then um, Mary Lee Hannington, who was our production designer, for instance, um, got us that there's this very, very beautiful house that the character Corinna mm-hmm. lives in that they knew because it was in their neighborhood. Um, and, um, and like, the, there's a location called Tires where we filmed all the olive tree scenes, and that was that's actually owned by um, our art director, but it's also an art space in um, Detroit. So I, um, I guess it was somewhat because it was sort of a community thing, and then also... Um, you know, Detroit is a lot less expensive than if you were to yes. shoot on an East Coast or West Coast city. Um, yes, so it I, is. <laughs> you know, to answer your question about financially, that that made it feasible, although we certainly tried to, you know, give everybody fair deals and, mm-hmm. and such. But um, it really had sort of like a community feel of, of coming up with that. So mm-hmm. that, was, that was really nice, and that is, I think, one thing that allowed the visuals to be so interesting and different and stunning. 
Well, and something else that is terrific and stunning is the cast that you've put together here. You have Corbin Blue, um, high school musical fame. Everybody knows who Corbin Blue is. Um, we don't see him as much as we might like to see him, but we get to see him here. And he plays Ovid. Then you've got John Savage, legend. I never thought I'd live to see the day that John Savage would be in a toga, but here we have it. Uh, with him as, as Emperor Augustus. Um, you've got Tamara Feldman, Joseph McKenna, uh, and, of course, uh, Amara Zaragoza, Tara Summer. How did you put this cast together? Um, was it the history of it? Was it the twist on history? I'm curious what attracted everybody to this film. Yeah, um, I think, I, you know, I think there's actually a lot of appetite for these classic stories. And, you know, I think the, the idea of sort of updating it has, is an interesting one. Um, you know, we were certainly, certainly very lucky. Um, I think, as you said, it's a kind of, it's, it's a very sort of diverse cast, partly in like acting background. Mm -hmm. um, but because we were looking at a film already that was sort of, you know, an interesting mixture of how things, you know, together in time and place, it all works really, really wonderfully. Um, and I think, therefore, you know, people who, as you mentioned, like, you know, Corbin comes from, or I guess he's done many, many things, but um, a lot of people know him from High School Musical mm -hmm. and John Savage from The Deer Hunter, which are clearly very different films. Um, but it sort of all sort of makes sense in this um, mashup world. Um, and they're both, you know, really fantastic, really dedicated, smart actors. And I think, I think, they, um, I think they were really attracted by the, the depths of the characters because mm -hmm. these are not, these are very complex characters. Um, and, um, you know, the story is a interesting, exciting one, and I think also there's a sort of political element, for lack of a better word, that was, or a social Oh, very, very much so. so there's, yeah, there's very much a socio-political element uh, underlying this entire, uh, special, uh, entire film, especially the role of Augustus, uh, and, you know, your dialogue, and the structure of it, and that's something else with your actors, is the cadence, the rhythmic cadence um, of the meter that you're writing in. Um, while you're using contemporary words, you're also hearkening back to more structured, um, I don't want to say elegiatic pentameter uh, meter structure, but you have a definite non-conforming meter structure that, with the dialogue that every one of these actors embraces in with the with the rhythm of their delivery and i just i love that 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 stands that really stands out for me oh that's great yeah i mean i think i sort of you know and and they ran with it sort of just make it as natural as possible mm -hmm. you know um so how would how would you say it normally you know um and, um, you know, Corbin did such a fantastic job. Um, really did. You know, with the poetry, for instance, mm -hmm. like he was actually slamming the poetry. Or, um, you know, John Savage 
uh, comes from a very sort of method acting background. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, always like relating it to sort of things that he could relate to. Um, and I think that really gave, because, you know, Augustus is kind of a bad guy, but he really gave it depth where he was a bad guy, but you could you could also see the humanity in him. And well, and you could, really... you could understand, you could understand what his way of thinking. It was a different world. He came up in a different world, a different time. So, and John really gave it that, that gravitas of understanding. Yeah, absolutely. No, he, he's really, um, he's really fantastic. And I, I know that in his, um, his regular life, he's very interested in sort of humanitarian work. And so he's very interested in, in Detroit and the fact that it was a struggling city and, and its own story and, and Detroit, it has certain parallels. Like at the time we were developing the film, you know, they'd lost, they'd essentially lost their democracy because they had gone bankrupt and had an appointed <laughs> mayor. So they couldn't vote. <laughs> um, so it's a little similar to some of the, the story of, of Augustus well, and un- his rise to power. Well, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. But before we go, we have to let everybody know we've got a world premiere of Ovid and the Art of Love coming up. And the world premiere is August 10th. So that is yeah. this Saturday at the Festival yeah. of Cinema in New York City. Absolutely. At 5.30 p.m. And then I'm sure we will show it beyond that. So everyone should keep a lookout for the release. But our uh, website is ovidintheartoflove.com. So um, and you can also find us on Facebook. Um, so follow us, and we'd love to see you in New York, but we'd also love to see you when we, when we release it as well. Now, do you have a distribution in place already, or is it just the, festi- the world premiere at this point? Um, it is the world premiere. Okay. Um, we're, we're working, working, on working on distribution. And this is, yeah. this is such a novel film that I'm sure... Um, this is like right in a wheelhouse for a Gravitas or A24, uh, a couple others out there, but those two pop in, pop to the forefront of my mind r- immediately as film, yeah, as films for them, or even Mar Vista Entertainment. Uh, of course, Mar Vista kind of goes a little more, a little more family wholesome. I wouldn't exactly call Ovid, um, family wholesome at times, uh, so <laughs> Thought-provoking and a, and a coming-of-age story, but yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, um, yes. Well, we have a, a wonderful sales agent, and we're sort of looking at offers at the moment, so it will come out. Yes. It's just a question of, of when, of, of where. Where and when. Um, but right now, yes. everybody in New York can go to the Festival of Cinema Saturday the 10th, this Saturday, 5.30 showing, um, and tickets are still available. And they can see an extremely entertaining and enlightening film with Ovid and the Art of Love. Love, Esme, thank you so much for com- for calling thank in you today. So much. This has been so so much to fun. Be here, and thank you for all your insightful questions. Oh, and well, the best of luck with the premiere on Saturday. And you're going to have to come back on the show and talk about the film some more when you get your distribution. We'd love to, absolutely. That oh. would be delightful. Esme, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. 
Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. And that was Esme von Hoffman, Ovid and the Art of Love, or Ovid, depending on your school of, of teaching, and the Art of Love, world premiere this Saturday at the Festival of Cinema in New York City. That is all the time we have today, once again. Uh, so next week, we are full up next week, too, with guests calling in. I'm very happy next week. Pat McGee, director Pat McGee, is back with us again talking about his latest documentary on The Deported. And we're going to have filmmaker Lissa Raven uh, talking about a film that I have fallen in love with. It's, it's quirky and has some creepy moments in it. Uh, but that's going to be next week. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.